3, verses 1 through 13. That's Revelation 3, verses 1 through 18. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews but are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The Old Testament reading is uh, from the book of Psalms, Psalms 9 and 10. To the choir master, according to Mut Laban, a psalm of David, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. 
O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made. In the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations who forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor that he, when he draws them into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their hearts. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of earth may strike terror no more. This is the word of the Lord. If you come from a big family, like I do, perhaps you'll have had an experience like this. Uh, There you all are in the car, perhaps, you know, coming back from church or somewhere. Um, The parents sit quiet and exhausted in the front, while uh, in the back the children chatter away and annoy each other. Um, But suddenly, you notice the absence of one of the usual voices. There are one too few children in the back. Somebody has been forgotten. It's never nice to be forgotten, is it? You know, whether it's someone who forgets your name or forgets your birthday. Well, our psalm today is all about forgetting and being forgotten. And it's actually not surprising that David would be thinking about this. Um, you, You know, as you go through the psalms, you often see a pattern where you have a psalm where David is calling out to the Lord for deliverance, and then right after it, you have a psalm of thanksgiving, for the deliverance has been received. Uh, but at this point in the Psalter, we've had a lot of psalms of calling out for deliverance, 
And we, we, it's taking a while to get to a psalm of thanksgiving. You know, David is having to wait for God's deliverance to come. So it's not surprising that David might feel like he's been forgotten when he wrote this psalm. And, and by the way, we're treating Psalms 9 and 10 together today, and that's because they were originally one psalm. There's a couple reasons we know that. Uh, first of all, you'll notice there's no heading to Psalm 10. Uh, also, they're one psalm in the Greek translation. And finally, this whole psalm is an acrostic, which means that each line starts with a different level, a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and that goes right through Psalms 9 and 10. So um, probably they were divided to get to the number of 150 total psalms, right? You know, people in the ancient world loved those special numbers. Um, but they really form one unit, and so we're going to be looking at it together today. Uh, and as I was saying, these two psalms are connected by a theme of forgetfulness. So first of all, we're going to learn that humans often forget God. Uh, and we're also going to see that um, humans are also tempted to think that God has forgotten them. So as we look at this psalm, uh, I want to look at three points. First, when humans forget God, it leads to wickedness and injustice. Second, while humans may forget God, there is good news in this psalm in the fact that God never forgets his people. And uh, third, we're going to see how this psalm is fulfilled in Jesus. So we're going to uh, look a little bit at how the wicked forget God. We're going to look a bit about how God never forgets his people, and then we're going to see how it ties into Jesus. So the first point, forgetting God leads to injustice. So in the psalm, we have an idea that shows up in a lot of psalms, right? And that is that the world is full of wicked people who oppress the poor. There's a lot of psalms about the wicked who oppress the poor and God who cares a lot about the poor. Um, and uh, we see that here. In, verse 10, in 10 verse 2, we see the wicked hotly pursuing the poor. In verses 8 to 10, we see him hiding in ambush, crouching like a lion for a helpless victim who he can attack and crush. Um, like I said, that's a very common theme in the Psalter. What's unique to this psalm, though, is that we get a little peek inside the head of the wicked to see where all of this wickedness comes from, right? So we get, we get the first peek in uh, Psalm 10, verse 4. All his thoughts are, there is no God. And this isn't just that the wicked has never heard of God before, right? I mean, look at 9, verse 17. Uh, they are called all the nations that forget God. There's an active avoidance of God, right? That's why it says all his thoughts are no God. Um, there's this constant mental effort to suppress the reality of who God is. Um, this atheism, it's not just an intellectual commitment either. It's not just an idea, it's also a heart attitude. In 10 verse 3, we learn that the wicked person is one who curses and renounces God. So not only does he not believe in God, he also hates him. And then in 10 verse 11, we see also the, the more practical side of this atheism, this belief that even if there is a God, he doesn't care about or interfere with anything that happens down here. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. And then again in verse 13, why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? The psalmist has given us a picture of all these different heart moments of, dis of uh, uh, disbelief going on in the wicked's heart. God doesn't exist even if he does, he's not actually going to show up and do anything. Uh, look, I can curse him and ignore him, and there are no consequences. And because the wicked person doesn't believe, 
that God cares about injustice. He doesn't believe that God will really judge sin. He doesn't believe his own actions have any consequences. And all of this, where does it lead to? There's this prideful self-confidence, right? 10 verse 4 says the wicked person doesn't seek God in the pride of his face. And uh, then we see, what does he say in verse 6? I shall not be moved throughout all generations. I shall not meet adversity. Do you see the the foolish self-confidence there? And then not only is the person called greedy for gain, in 10 verse 3, he's actually proud of how greedy he is, right? He boasts of the desires of his soul. Or I think that word that the ESV translates as soul, we might even better translate as appetite. He boasts in the desires of his appetite. Um, people, people do that, don't they? I mean, I think back to some people I knew at, in college, right? You know, so, you know, one guy is boasting about how much he drank, you know, last weekend, and the other is boasting with how many people he slept with or something. But then, like, imagine you got this guy who's just like, yeah, like, I evicted so many orphans, you know, and you should have seen their sad little faces out in the rain. Man, what a weekend. I'd be like, dude, that, that's not cool, right? But that's how jaded this wicked person has become. Because he has no fear of God, no fear of any consequences for his actions, he's become morally numb, and his conscience is seared. But we also learn that that's a grave miscalculation, isn't it? Uh, now, 10 verse 5 says his ways prosper at all times, so it seems like everything is going really well, but then we have the second part of the verse. Your judgments are on high out of his sight. God's judgment is very real. The wicked one thinks that God has no wrath for him, but actually he's storing up wrath in heaven against himself. There's this great ocean of wrath dammed up, ready to burst on his head at any moment. Uh, He's missed the fact that, as Paul says, God's kindness is meant to lead to repentance, to leave room for him to turn from his sins. But the fact that God's wrath is delayed doesn't mean that God has forgotten The wicked may have forgotten God, but God has not forgotten him. As 9 verse 7 says, God sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. God's court is always in session. Verse 12 tells us that God is mindful of the poor. He does not forget their cry uh, of the afflicted. In fact, God is a blood avenger for the poor. Right? In that culture, you don't have police or prosecuting attorneys. Uh, if someone wrongs you, the only way for justice to happen is if somebody powerful advocates for you. And then if somebody murders you, it's up to your family to see that justice is done. But then, what about the poor? What about those who don't have influence or connections or money, who nobody stands up for? Well, God is their protector. You know, we've all, we've all seen action movies, right? We know how this works. If you hurt John Wick's dog, then he's going to come after you, right? Or if you kidnap Liam Neeson's daughter, he has like a particular set of skills, and uh, he's going to find you. Well, if you mess with the poor, you mess with God. God will not delay judgment forever. The wicked one will ultimately fall into his own pit and be caught in his own snare, 9 verses 15 to 16. His arm will be broken and his wickedness found out, 10 verse 15. uh, um, He will stumble and perish, 9 verse 3. He will descend to Sheol, that's the place of death and darkness, 9 verse 17. And finally, 9 verse 5, his name will be blotted out forever. His cities will be rooted out and his memory shall perish. See, in the end, it's not the poor that are going to be forgotten, but the wicked. Even if he's built cities, 
In his name, everything that seems so solid in his life is going to dissolve and disappear before the judgment of God. And it will be like he never existed. So that's the wicked. Now, what do, what do we have to learn from that tonight? You know, what does this portrait of the person who forgets God have to teach us? Um, well, when we're reading the psalm, these psalms, right, it's important that we don't just, like, think about the wicked and apply that to other people in our lives, right? We also need to examine ourselves and see, are there ways in which I'm being tempted to follow down these same paths? Um, so let's think about that. Is there any practical atheism in your own life that you need to repent of? How are you tempted to forget God? And how does that work itself out into sin against other people in your own life? Um, I mean, let's just remind ourselves of how the dynamic works again, right? It starts with forgetting God, with looking at the world as if God were like permanently absent from it and there were no just judge capable of providing consequences. Then second, it works itself into greed and pride and self-confidence in our hearts. Because there's no just God, we must take matters into our own hands. You know, we buy into this dog-eat-dog mentality. We look out for number one. Third, we become schemers. As, verse 10, as 10 verse 7 outlines, we use deceit and oppression to get ahead. If there's no ultimate justice, why not pursue your goals using Game of Thrones tactics? And finally, four, this leads to a callous disregard for other people, turning other people into means to our end, consuming other people like predatory animals. So how might this be operational in your life? Let's just walk through one example. How do you relate to your possessions? You know, your money, your home, the things you own, your time. Uh, now, God gave them all to you, right? There's, there's nothing you have that didn't come from him. But if you forget that, then it's like, well, you earned them. They're mine, right? That's like the, one of the first words we learn as children, mine. Um, uh, and, and who's going to ensure that you, that you keep them? Or who's going to ensure that you get more if you need or want it? Well, it's up to you. You get this pride and self-confidence going. Um, now, what happens if you're thinking that way, and then somebody, there, there, there's a demand on your time or your money. Somebody needs something, right? Uh, how are you going to react to that? Are you going to be somebody who gives generously? Because after all, God's given it to you so that you might glorify him. Or are you going to refuse to help another person because your priority is taking care of yourself? This might be something that's especially clear to some of you who are married here today, right? I mean, this is the crazy thing about marriage, right? You take two people who may have very different ideas about what is valuable and like worth spending money on, and then you like give, have them hold joint property and have to you know, figure out how to do, use it together. Um, so I mean, let me ask you married folk tonight. Um, are you looking at the things you have primarily as something that uh, you can use for your own purposes? Or are you thinking about how to use them to bless your spouse or to bless other people? If perchance there is any conflict about money in your marriage, which I, I've, I've heard happens, um, which mentality do you tend to adopt? And uh, don't you single people think that you're off the hook here either? If anything, it's, it might be easier for us single people to slip into a self-centered attitude when it comes to our money and our time because, I mean, we make all those decisions just by ourselves. There's nobody there auditing us. What does your, what does your credit card and bank statement say about where your values are, right? Does it show that you have forgotten God? Or does it show God's concern to love others? 
especially the poor and the vulnerable? It's a difficult question. It is, for me, for me too. But it's an opportunity to examine our hearts, to see if we have forgotten God. Um, and it's an opportunity as well to avoid some of the negative consequences that uh, come from that, the damageness that this selfishness does to our own souls and to those around us. So this is a chance to repent of our sin, the wickedness that might be inside us, and come back to God for forgiveness. So that's the first point. Why are the wicked wicked? It's because they have forgotten God. But this temptation that leads to proud confidence, deception, and violence to the poor, that's not the only temptation we're faced with in this passage. There's also the temptation to think that God has forgotten us. The first temptation is one primarily for those with the power to sin blatantly against other people. Uh, But the second temptation applies most to those who are weak and sinned against. Uh, It's the temptation to despair. Um, All of us are sinners, right? We all contribute to the injustice in the world, but we are also sinned against. And so we need to guard against both the temptations to think that our sin doesn't matter to God, but also the temptation to think that our suffering doesn't matter to God. And I think that's the temptation that is actually closest to David's heart in this psalm. I mean, on the one hand, David has has all the theological categories, right? Um, When it comes to God's justice, he knows that God sits enthroned forever, that he judges the people in uprightness. He knows that the oppressed won't be forgotten by God. He knows God sees the suffering of the afflicted. Uh, David knows all of that, and yet at the same time, David feels very different. Uh, It's an interesting pattern we can see in the psalm. So, um, on the one hand, David knows that God doesn't hide his face from the poor. And yet, 10 verse 1, he says, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Now, in 10 verse 14, he says, But you do see, you note, mischief and vexation. And at the same time, in 9 verse 13, he calls out, Be gracious to me, O Lord, see my affliction from those who hate me. David knows God will judge the nations, but we still find him in 9 verse 19 crying out, Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. David knows that God doesn't forget the afflicted, but we find him crying out in 10 verse 12, Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand, forget not the afflicted. David knows that God will judge the wicked, but we still see him crying out in 10 verse 15, Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. So you see, what we see in this psalm is we have all of these statements of faith, statement about what's true about God, but then interspersed with that, we have David asking God to be what he knows God is, or um, asking God why things don't look the way that his theology tells him they actually are. Um, I hope that's already something of a comfort to you tonight, right? We don't find in the Psalms just a bunch of great heroes of the faith who never doubted and just cheerfully kept calm and carried on whatever life threw at them. No, we find a weak and afflicted people who knew the weight of a broken world. You know, these are saints who knew the difference between faith and sight, who knew the pain that could come from struggling in the gap between what they believed and what they could see. So what do you do when you're in that gap? What do you do when it seems like God has forgotten you? Well, the first step we see in the psalm is faith, trust in God. 9 verse 9 says, The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. 
and those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. And 10 verse 14 says, To you the helpless commits himself. You have been a helper to the fatherless. Actually, that translation there, the helpless uh, commits himself, it's a little weak. What it literally says in the Hebrew is the helpless abandons himself on you. There's no formality here. There's no pretense. The weak ones abandon all other hope and throw themselves upon God as their refuge. And this trust, it doesn't mean burying your emotions and pretending they're not there. Uh, It means instead bringing those emotions to your heavenly Father. 10 verse 17 says, O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline their ear. And 10 verse 14 says, But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. Isn't that a wonderful image? God does see the affliction of the afflicted. He carefully observes every emotion, each sorrow and grief, each hope and desire and fear, and he takes them all into his hands. God makes our problems his problems. None of our desires is too small to receive the tender care of his attention. As Jesus tells us, your father knows what you need even before you ask him. So this psalm is an invitation for us to trust God with those emotions, to bring them to him for comfort. And there's another promise in this passage as well. 9 verse 18, the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. We may have to wait for our faith to become sight. We may have to wait for God to act. But we're also given the promise that we have a sure hope. God is with the poor in their oppression, strengthening their hearts so that they can endure it. If God is for us, even the gates of hell can't prevail against us. And that brings us to maybe the strangest part of this psalm, right? Because clearly David's still in the middle of tribulation here. He's still waiting for God's deliverance. And yet already we find David praising. Look at 9 verse 11. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the people his deeds. And in fact, the beginning of the psalm Uh, is a bit of a fake-out. It starts like a psalm of deliverance, right? David says, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name. Usually, that would be followed by a description of how God has delivered David, right? But here we find David already praising, even though he's still in the midst of tribulation. So you see, so sure is God's justice So sure is this promise of deliverance that it's already good news even to those who have to wait for it. And so when we come to God and trust him with our affection, we can find in him a source of hope and joy which can give our hearts the strength they need to persevere. Let's let's stop for a moment and let, let this sink in a little bit. Where are the places of affliction in your life tonight? And where are the places where you are tempted to think that God has forgotten you? Do you, like David, have some, some person in your life who has it out for you? Somebody at work or school or even in your family? Do you know what it means to be grievously sinned against? Or perhaps there's some illness in your family or loss or depression or anxiety, something that seems too big for you to deal with it. Or maybe it's uh, Satan's voice you hear telling you that you are not worthy. Because of your sins, God has forgotten you. 
How could he care? How could he truly have love for you? God sees that affliction. God has not forgotten you. Bring your affliction to him and entrust him with it. Let him be your fortress of refuge. He will strengthen your heart and let you know that your hope is not in vain. In God, we have a loving Heavenly Father who cares deeply for our sorrows and who promises to be a refuge for us. So that's our second point. Though we are tempted to forget God, He has not forgotten us. But lastly, we need to talk about how this psalm, what this psalm means now in the light of Jesus. Because we have now a much greater demonstration of God's justice than David ever has in his life. In the cross and in the empty tomb, we have an even greater assurance that God will not forget us. Well, why is that? Well, first of all, in Jesus, we have a radical demonstration of God's love for the poor, don't we, right? In Jesus, God actually himself becomes a poor, weak baby, and Jesus lives his whole life in poverty of weakness, right? He says about himself, foxes have holes and bird, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. All this is the gift of his life as an offering to the Father. Jesus doesn't give in to the temptation to forget God, right? When Satan in the wilderness offers him a way out of hunger, a way to short-circuit this path of suffering God has called him to and get immediately to the glory now, uh, Jesus refuses, He sets his face resolutely towards Jerusalem, towards the cross that he's walking towards. And all along the way, he displays God's love for the poor. Um, He pours out his life for them. He he, uh, eats with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes and outcasts. And Jesus is consumed with zeal for justice, right? He displays God's perfectly just anger against the exploitation of the poor in his temple. All this is Christ's obedience in your place. It was for us that Jesus lived the perfectly just life that we so often fail to live. And so Jesus remains faithful even to the cross. But what happens at the cross, right? Jesus enters into the very depths of human oppression. He's falsely accused, beaten, and torturously killed. But that's only the physical agony Jesus is also abandoned. All his followers flee away at his arrest. Even worse than that, Jesus is forsaken by God himself. You, as a child of God, have God's promise that you will never be forgotten or forsaken. But Jesus, God's own son, cries out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus enters into the depths of human abandonment and loneliness and forsakenness. He is forgotten by God. Why? Why is Jesus forgotten? It's because that's the penalty of the wicked. This is the penalty which we deserved, instead poured out on him. And yet still Christ perseveres. Even through this forsakenness, he perseveres in love, pouring out his life for us to the end. Our psalm tells us that God will take all our griefs and sorrows into his hands, And on the cross, we see God incarnate take all our deepest griefs and sorrows into his own self and carry them down into the grave for us. Such is the sacrifice that Christ has offered for us. But that's still not the end of the story, is it? Uh, No, 
Jesus is forsaken, but not forever. His righteous offering is accepted. As Hebrews tells us, Jesus' prayers and supplications offered up to God were heard. Because of his perfect righteousness, God raised Christ from the dead and exalted him to his right hand in glory and power. In Christ's death, God's verdict of judgment on sin is heard once and for all. And in his resurrection, God's verdict of justification is given to those of us who are united in him. God's justice is powerfully demonstrated in the Son's death on the cross and resurrection, and that means that we can know that just as surely as God has raised Christ from the dead, there is a day coming when Christ will come again to finally destroy all sin, all injustice, and to bring in a kingdom of perfect peace. Do you realize the assurance that you have been given, Christian? God himself has triumphed over your sorrow at the cross. God himself has guaranteed your righteousness in Christ's resurrection, giving it to you as a free gift. This is a sure hope in the midst of your sin and the sin that's done against you. You have a God you can trust with your affliction, a God who assures you of his love in Christ, a God who brings you to life by his spirit and who promises to keep you safe in his love until Jesus returns again. We, like David, still have to walk by faith, right? We don't yet see Christ triumphant over all evil. We're still called to persevere through suffering and affliction, and we're still marred by our own sin. But we have a greater promise than David even had. We have Christ died and risen again as an assurance of the abundant, unfathomable love of God for us despite our sin. Uh, How could God forget you? Could God forget his own son who sits now at his side? But you're united to Christ. You're a joint heir with him of the Father's perfect love. You have been given the Spirit who is one with the Father and the Son. This is the God who's given himself to you in Christ and who says, I will never leave you or forsake you. In Christ, we have a sure guarantee that God will not forget us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you as uh, sinners and also as people afflicted um, by uh, the oppression in the world and sin against us. But Lord, we come to a God who has shown his love for sinners, who has shown his love for those who are weak and afflicted in uh, your son, Jesus. And so um, as we come to you today in prayer, We thank you for this great gift that you've given to us, and we ask that you would help us to always remember this love that has been shown to us in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.